In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, God, for this day. Please bless this time that we have together, O Lord, and grant us your peace and wisdom, and help us to understand ourselves and this world and the, the direction that you are leading us in our lives. The prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints. Here says we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power and the glory for and ever and ever. Amen. <coughs> uh, good evening, everybody. God willing, today we're going to continue um, our another Q&A session. Um, as always, the link here on the title slide is uh, if you'd like to submit any questions uh, for next time, uh, you can please do so um, at that link. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. <clears throat> so first question is, I believe it is true we can ask any Christian to pray for us, our friends who are alive on earth, or our grandparents, church fathers, and saints who have died and are in paradise. But what is the difference between that and invoking their prayers at the end of a personal prayer? Can we invoke the prayers of someone who is a saint in another church, but not in the Coptic church like Mother Teresa? Example, dear God, please keep us safe from illness and help the poor through the intercession of Archangel Gabriel and St. Mary and through the prayers of the St. Saint, Saint Paul and Mother uh, Teresa. Um, so, so first I want to uh, just uh, go a little bit over like what is our belief about the intercession of the saints? Um, and then we can like try to address specifically this question. Um, so as far as the intercession of the, of the saints, so we see several examples in scripture where um, God is asking us to seek the intercession of those people who are righteous, right? And that's what intercession of the saints is, like, like really what, what intercession of the saints is, is it's asking uh, others to pray for us. That's, that's it, that's all it is. There's no difference between me um, asking for the intercession of a saint who is in heaven compared to asking for my friend to pray for me. Those are the, exactly the same thing, okay? The only difference is that when we're asking for someone who's already in heaven to pray for us, it entails the belief that, of course, there is life after death and that we believe that the people who have passed on and have, de have, have departed to heaven can hear us and can respond to us and are active and alive um, as opposed to being somehow dead or unable to see us or asleep or in some other way kind of not aware of our condition on earth. So when we speak about the intercession of the saints, uh, we can, we can you know, inter ask intercession for, from people who are in heaven and people who are already on earth, okay? And we see examples of this in scripture where God is asking, asking certain people to seek the intercession of a righteous person, right? God is asking us to seek the intercession of the righteous. So for instance, in Genesis chapter 20, um, we see the story of Abraham when he went to uh, King Abimelech and, 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 um, and, and uh, King Abimelech took Sarah, his wife, uh, to be his wife without knowing that she was already married to Abraham. And so at the end of this story, um, God is speaking to Abimelech and he's saying to him, now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you shall live. Right. God is saying, I will hear the prayers of Abraham because he is a righteous man. He is a prophet. I will hear his prayers and then you will live. Okay. Also in the story of Job, um, in Job chapter 42, uh, after many, many chapters in the, in the book of Job, where Job's friends are rebuking him and criticizing him and essentially telling him that he is a sinner, um, God comes and he rebukes them. Okay. And it says in Job 42, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly. So again, God is showing here that the reason that he would have mercy and the reason he would accept these men, again, right, is, is because Job will pray for them. Of course, they're offering a sacrifice and then they go and they say, and he says, my servant Job shall pray for you for I will accept him 
lest I deal with you according to your folly. This is another example of the intercession of the saints when someone who's alive, right? Um, another example is uh, when God had decided to destroy the city of Sodom, um, instead of just going to destroy the city, he went to, to Abraham and he told Abraham what he was getting ready to do. You know, God could have punished the city of Sodom without letting Abraham know about anything that was, that was going to be done. Um, but God revealed it to him and gave him the opportunity to plead for the people of Sodom, in which case Abraham was pleading and asking God to spare the city uh, and if, if there were any number of righteous people dwelling in the city. It's another example of intercession. Um, another, the last one I'm going to talk about here is the example of Moses um, when uh, God had decided that he wanted to destroy the Israelites uh, because they had worshipped the golden calf. Moses responded to him in Exodus 32. He says, turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. And then the Bible says, so the Lord relented from the harm, which he said he would do to his people. Right? So God had intended to do one thing, but because of the prayer of Moses, Moses' intercession for the people, God relented from what he was going to do. Okay? These are some examples of intercession. Um, the, the examples I mentioned here were, were primarily intercession um, of those people who are still alive. But the idea of intercession in heaven is exactly the same principle. Um, so the question then is, how do we ask for the, for the prayer, right? How do we ask for prayer? So those people who are alive on earth, right? The important thing is that we are able to communicate with them uh, that we want prayer, right? We, we want to communicate them and ask them for their prayer. So those people who are alive on earth, they don't have, you know, they're not, they don't have any way to know that we're asking for their prayer unless we go tell them, right? So we go to our friend, we call them on the phone, or we go to Abuna, we say, hey, um, can you please pray for me about this and this, right? That's the way that they would know that we need their prayer. But for those people who are in heaven, right, the way that we seek their prayer is in our prayer. So in our prayer, we're speaking to um, the saints, Right. We're not praying to the saints. Right. Prayer is to God. But we're speaking to the saints who hear us and we're asking for them to pray on our behalf to God. OK, that's why we mentioned their names uh, in, in, in at the end of our prayer, because this is our way of asking for intercession. Right. We typically don't do that um, for uh, people um, unless maybe the person who we're asking for their intercession is actually with us present and hearing the prayer. Because the whole idea of this is to make it known to the person we are seeking intercession from that we want them to pray for us. Okay. Um, as far as asking for the intercession of other people who are not Orthodox. Okay. So, you know, in, from an official stance is we do not recognize the sainthood, right, of any other church. Because we don't, we don't acknowledge that those other churches are, have the correct faith. Okay, even actually the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, formally, uh, officially, right now, we don't recognize any of their saints, right? Um, so, but it's at the same time, it's important to understand what does it mean to use the word saint to describe someone, you know? Like, like when, when the church is, refers to somebody as a saint, it doesn't change anything about who they are or their status in, in the eyes of God or anything like that. Like, for instance, when Pope Krollos, you know, Pope Krollos VI, um, we canonized him to be a saint, right? But the fact that we we made him to be a saint, we referred to him as saint, that's just referring to the way that we, we see him, not changing anything about who he is. Like he was already in the eyes of God a saint from before, from before we began to refer to him that as that. So it's a title, right? It's a title. It's a recognition of the sainthood of a person based on their life, okay? So just as you could... You know, maybe you have a Catholic friend and you can ask that Catholic friend to pray for you. Okay. And there isn't anything wrong with asking a Catholic friend to pray for you. Right. We could ask people who would be considered to be saints in the Catholic church to pray for us, regardless of whether we, we recognize their sainthood or not. Right. You know, so, so it's not that it's, it's not like this is like only effective, you know, within a, like a, a certain group of people. Okay. Uh, and I don't want to try to put a rule and say, well, you know, this is what we should do and this is what we should not do. But I would say definitely that um, those people who we seek intercession from should be righteous people, people who believe that are in heaven. Um, 
you know, in James 5.16, it says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, right? So we are seeking the intercession of those who are righteous, okay? And certainly I would say Mother Teresa was a very righteous woman, um, regardless of whether we officially recognize her as a saint or not. Um, she, was, she was a righteous woman. But while I say that, you know, we also need to be careful not to find ourselves falling into some kind of a heresy where we begin to ask for the intercession, you know, of a bunch of people that, you know, maybe maybe fundamentally have very, very different uh, belief systems and, 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 you know, and what does the church teach about the, those people and like their beliefs. So um, it's definitely something we should be careful about, but um, so that we don't get confused and we don't send the wrong message. But fundamentally, right, just as I can ask any Christian friend of mine uh, to pray for me, right, that I could do the same for someone who has departed. <clears throat> Number two, in Philippians chapter one, verses 15 through 18, St. Paul says that some people preach the word of God out of envy and strife and selfish ambition in order to add affliction to his change, chains. What does that mean? So, um, so first of all, the, the, the epistle to the Philippians is known as one of the prison epistles, okay? One of the prison epistles. And that means that it was written while St. Paul was in prison, okay? So when he's saying here, um, in order to add affliction to my chains, the chains he's referring to are like his imprisonment chains, the chains of his imprisonment, okay? So I'm going to read the whole verse here uh, just so that, you know, we'll be on the same page. So it says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So St. Paul is saying there are some people who are legitimate uh, preachers, apostles, people that care about the truth, people that want the salvation of the world, the people that are spreading the true message of the gospel and doing it with good motives, which are selfless motives, wanting to uh, serve the people and follow their calling from God, right? So these are those who he says what? Those who preach Christ from goodwill, okay? So those people whom preach Christ from goodwill, obviously St. Paul is joyful um, because he, they, are, they are preaching Christ. Now keep in mind now St. Paul is in prison, right? So he's not able to go about visiting churches and preaching and doing the things that he has been doing, okay? So while there he is in prison, he sees these other teachers that are going around teaching the people um, out of goodwill, he's rejoicing, right? Because of this. But there is another group of people, right? Whom here St. Paul is saying, indeed preach Christ from envy and strife, okay? So these are those who are preaching from selfish motives, not because they care about the salvation of the people, not because they want to spread the word of God, not because they, they want to defend the gospel, okay? But because they want to increase their influence, they want to increase their status, they are jealous of St. Paul because he has such a you know, prominent status and he has done so much to spread the gospel throughout the world and maybe feel like they're in competition with him. If you go back to in the book of 1 Corinthians, how there was groups of Christians that um, were divided in the city of Corinth because some were following, you know, one teacher and others were following another teacher. And St. Paul was saying, we're all teaching the same. So there are some people who, um, you know, they, they didn't care as much about the goal and the mission. They cared more about what they had to gain out of it and their preeminence, okay? And, 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 and now St. Paul being in prison, right, it made those people more emboldened, feeling that now they had more opportunity to spread influence and to, you know, to, to do more work, right, as compared to St. Paul, okay? And, and by doing this, okay, they thought that they would be hurting St. Paul, right? And they're doing this from envy, right? Envy of him and strife, causing division, okay? But St. Paul here, he's responding and saying, he doesn't care who was preaching, you know, he, all he cares about is that the word of God is preached. This is what he says here in the end in verse 18. 
It says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So the rejoicing of St. Paul is based on the idea that the word of God is spreading and that it is, that it is being spread to all people every place. He doesn't care about if those people even have the selfish motives or not, right? You know, it, 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 all that, all that he matter, matters to him is not whether those people have selfish motives, because in the end, God will judge the preacher. All he cares about is that the word of God is preached, right? So you see really truly that he was a man with uh, the right attitude about things. You know, sometimes uh, we, we, we do the right thing, but maybe we do them for the wrong reason. Or maybe we start doing them for the right reason and over time it changes to the wrong reason. Maybe at the beginning I, I'm doing something because I believe it, I believe in it, and then after a while I begin to do it because of what I get out of it. Maybe I get position, maybe I get money, maybe I get power, maybe I get something out of it. And so I begin to do it for the wrong reason. I mean, maybe politics is a perfect example of this. Like you could have, um, you know, uh, someone who is, you know, starting out as a politician and in their mind, what they really care about is wanting to do what's best for the country and, um, and, and, and about having these ideals that they want to implement and so on. And that after many years, maybe they become jaded um, and then they realize that really the only thing they want is to just stay in power, right? So um, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's kind of a similar concept. Maybe some of these teachers at the beginning, they, they were preaching um, for the right reason. And then after a while, they began to become envious of St. Paul they wanted to gain authority and power as they saw that he was had had such influence. So they went astray, began to do things for the wrong reasons. And yet St. Paul didn't even care, right? As long as they were preaching the, the truth, the word of God unmolested, as long as they were not spreading heresies and would be considered false teachers, then as long as that was the case, then he didn't care if people, you know, followed these teachers or liked these people or not. All he cared about is that the word of God was preached, not that he was seeking some kind of recognition for himself. And this is the true, uh, this is the true sign of a real servant, right? A real servant is wanting to serve the people and see what is best for them, not caring whether that message or that benefit comes through them or comes through someone else. All that he cares about is that what in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. And we rejoice because we see Christ being preached even if it's being preached by the other guy, even if the other person is gaining some reputation or some benefit from this, right? We are rejoicing because in the end, the word of God is being preached, not because we are gaining anything out of this preaching. Number three. Do we know uh, why our Lord Jesus chose to come from the tribe of Judah? Um, so if you read in um, uh, Genesis chapter 49, so Genesis chapter 49, this is toward the very end um, of the book of Genesis. Uh, and in this chapter, Jacob is uh, nearing death and he is giving a word of blessing or in some cases cursing a word of prophecy uh, toward each of his sons. OK, and so. Um, in each of the each of the sons, he is like saying some prophetic word about something that will characterize them and their tribe, their lineage uh, moving forward in the future. Okay, so when he's speaking about Judah, Judah is one of his sons, one of the became one of the twelve tribes of Israel, and this was the tribe uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, came from. So it says in in Genesis forty nine verse ten, this is now speaking about Judah. Okay says the scepter shall not depart from judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until shiloh comes and to him shall shall be the obedience of the people okay so this prophecy was speaking about the kings right the scepter right the scepter is like the staff that the king holds demonstrating the authority of the king and, and being a lawgiver the one who gives the law the one who enforces the law the, right this is the uh, the, the, the kings are going to be coming from the tribe of Judah, right? King David um, and all of the kings came from this tribe, okay? Um, also, uh, King David, uh, we see that 
God made specific uh, covenants with him, speaking about how uh, the Messiah would come from his lineage. Okay, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, when your this is God speaking to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, right? His seed is going to be his descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, right? There's a dual prophecy here, because and the, 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 the literal fulfillment of this prophecy is speaking about Solomon, right? Because Solomon was, uh, King Solomon was the son of David, came from his body, right? And he shall build a house because King Solomon is the one who built the temple, right? But then when he says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, well, we know obviously King Solomon did not live forever. So he's speaking now of the spiritual kingdom, right? Of the Messiah who is to come from his lineage. Um, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as long as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established before you uh, forever before you, your throne shall be established forever. So again, the idea that the, the kingship, the kingdom will be established forever through the lineage of King David, this is not speaking just specifically about Solomon, it's speaking about the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven, okay? Um, also in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, it says, For unto you a child is born, uh, unto you a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So again, another verse speaking about specifically upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. This is the this is the, the tribe uh, through which uh, uh, the, the Messiah would come, right? This is a famous verse that we speak about the prophecy of the birth of Christ, okay? So um, from the very beginning, God had chosen Judah, right, to be the, the, the one through whom the kings would come. We see that the kings of the Old Testament came through him, as well as the king of kings, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, that also came through this. So, so because the, the people were expecting the, the, the king to come through the tribe of Judah, it was easier for them to identify him when he came. That was the intention, is that they would have these signs and that they would see these signs that the, the, the people would know that this is the Messiah when he would be born. Um, so, so here we see kind of like the, the genesis of the beginning of, of the decision that God made of the revealing that the, king, the kings would come through Judah and the Lord Jesus Christ would come through the tribe of Judah. Number four, in the gospel of St. Mark, chapter 8, verse 24, the Bible speaks about the situation in which our Lord healed the blind man. And it says about the man who got healed, and he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. What is the significance of this? And why did this man's healing happen gradually while other blind men who Christ healed too were able to see right away? Okay. Um, so in, in the, the passage immediately before this event happens, where Christ heals this blind man in this way, um, this is the, the feeding of the 4,000. Usually, actually, we were always speaking about the feeding of the 5,000. That's all of the times we mentioned this miracle in the church. It's always the feeding of the 5,000. Um, but there was another time where Christ also fed the multitude, and it was called the feeding of the 4,000. So um, the feeding of the 4,000 is described at the beginning of the, this, this chapter, Mark chapter 8. And um, as a part of this, uh, Christ is like questioning the apostles and he's asking them about, you know, do do like essentially revealing that they don't understand, like they don't have the spiritual knowledge or understanding about who he is, of what's happening, of how is it that God is doing these miracles of, you know, they're like, they're spiritually blind still. Okay. Um, so what is happening now in this uh, healing is linked to what just the event that just happened with kind of like the spiritual confusion 
that the disciples have at this point and not being fully like illuminated yet. You know, you see at the end of, of the Christ ministry, essentially after the, 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 the Pentecost, uh, after Christ is already resurrected, you see a different, you know, spirit in the apostles, right? They received the Holy Spirit, right? Just as all of the believers did on the day of Pentecost. They had a different understanding. They spoke with courage. They spoke with knowledge. They, they weren't confused. They, they were selfless. They were willing to sacrifice their lives. Like there, there was so much, right? But during the life of Christ, um, they stumbled a lot and they, they were confused a lot as to what was actually happening, okay? So they were kind of had this spiritual fog. So, so what's happening now in this miracle where Christ is healing these, this blind man is the, 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 the means by which he's healing him is kind of mirroring uh, the, what's happening with the disciples. And the idea that when you have someone who is like spiritually blind, they don't go from being spiritually blind to being spiritually illuminated instantly, you know? Like even those people with the best of enchanters, like you see somebody, let's say, who was baptized into the church as an adult. Um, and, you know, prior to that, they let's say they were not even Christian. Um, and they're very zealous and they, they want to know the truth and they want to grow in the church or they attend the church, but, but their knowledge is still uh, lacking, right? They're still, there's still a lot of things they don't understand or they misunderstand or they think is true that's not or vice versa. So you, you, there's this process of growing toward God, growing in understanding, growing in love, growing to be transformed like by the Holy Spirit and, um, you know, and, and like gaining virtues and, and, and showing kindness and, and being Christ-like and so on. This whole transformation, this we call it sanctification, right? It's a process. And, and even though baptism is the, the sacrament that illuminates us, but our illumination continues to grow over time. So... Uh, even though someone could be very zealous and wanting to do what is right, right? Um, but the, the process of kind of gaining our insight, gaining our illumination, gaining eyesight, spiritual eyesight, is not something that happens immediately. So here, this miracle is kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, showing that, like symbolic to that, right? Um, like this man who uh, was completely blind, right? He didn't go to completely see all at once, but he began to see what I see men walking, walking like trees. Uh, it's not really, the, it's not about the trees. It's about the idea that he's not seeing clearly, right? He sees something moving, right? Whereas before he saw nothing, you know, he, he sees something moving, but he didn't, he didn't understand it yet. And really all of our spiritual understandings is this way, right? St. Paul spoke about how like here in the world we see dimly, right? But there in heaven, we see face to face. Here, everything is clouded, right? Even, even the things that we as believers believe on by faith, we still don't have full understanding of them, right? It takes time. We grow into understanding, and some things we will never understand until actually we um, reach heaven, right? So, so here, the same process here is mirrored. This man is kind of gaining his vision um, gradually, um, and just as also the disciples, it took them time gradually to go from like a state of spiritual darkness at the beginning to being you know, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and being the ones to grant this illumination, right, to the rest of the world, it didn't happen immediately. So we should also, like, when we think about this and how it applies to ourselves um, in the church, we need to be understanding that um, people are all different levels of growth and understanding, and that uh, even I, as a believer, should not assume that I have all the answers um, and that I see everything clearly, right? Maybe I think I see, right? But I, I don't fully see as I should, and I continue to grow um, and see better and better as the time goes on. Number five. In St. Paul's letters to the Hebrews, why is Barak named as a hero instead of Deborah or Jael? Okay. So um, this is referring, so this uh, Hebrews, uh, this Hebrews chapter 11 uh, so we can read here uh, this verse that's being referenced in this question. And this is Hebrews 11, 32. Uh, th this chapter is, is speaking about what we call the heroes of faith. Um, St. Paul, when writing this to the Hebrews, he is um, re referencing in the Old Testament all of the evidence and proof to demonstrate to the Hebrews that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, 
and he speaks uh, about all the prophets and he speaks about all of the heroes that came that demonstrated the faith and that are like the famous people that we read about in the scripture. Um, and so he mentions like all of these famous people that we read about like Abraham, Moses, and all these people. Um, so toward the end of this list, okay, of people, he says what, and this is in verse 32, he says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail, fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, uh, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, right? So here in, in kind of recounting this list of many names, but then at the end, he said, essentially, I, I don't have time to list everyone, right? I don't have time to list. Like he, didn't, he didn't mention here, for instance, all the judges. So, so Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, these were all judges that we read about in the book of Judges. So for instance, Deborah in the question is asking, why is Deborah not mentioned? Well, Deborah is one of the judges, right? Um, but he didn't even mention all the judges, even the other judges that are male. For instance, Othiniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Tola, these were all other names of people who are judges that are mentioned in uh, the book of Judges. And some of them actually have like a prominent place with like a lot of stories and things that were said about them um, doing important things. And yet he didn't even mention their names because essentially he's saying, I don't have time to mention everyone, but he made his point, right? His point is that God used uh, all of these people because of their faithfulness in the Old Testament, right? And that we look to them and we honor them because of all that they do have done. And they are like examples to us when we look at their lives and we seek to emulate the faith that they had Whenever we read the Old Testament, which is one of the reasons why the Old Testament is so vital for us, you know, we see people, we see the example of faith that people had and that we should be living the same. People who, you know, are living under very difficult circumstances. Like we're studying the Bible study now in the book of Genesis, we're speaking about Joseph, right? And you see how Joseph endured so much suffering, right? And how God used all these years of suffering the, that Joseph endured to ultimately make him to be the second ruler in Egypt so that he would um, wisely deal with a famine that was about to happen. And so that essentially he would be a savior to the world. He's a messianic figure. We consider him to be like a symbolic of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself because he was able to save the world through saving enough food so that he could distribute to the people so they would not die of hunger during the famine, right? So you see how God took this young boy um, and, and went through this years and years of hardship. And we can kind of look at him and say, you know, God is also using our hardships for some good, right? So he's a hero, right? We look at him as a hero. So there's, uh, there's not a reason here to explicitly exclude anybody. It's just that there are many names that are not mentioned just because of space. Number six. What is the doctrine of divinization and what is our church's stance on it? So this doctrine is um, also commonly known either as theosis or deification, okay? And what it means is union with God, right? It means, deification means to become like God, okay? And, and, and to become like God because of being in union with him, okay? It's taken from the Greek, right? Theos means God, and enosis means union. So theosis is union with God. Christ, actually, when he was praying to the Father in John chapter 17, um, he prayed that about the apostles, and he said that they also may be one in us. So he's speaking about who is the us, the, the God and the Son, like the Trinity, right? So he says that the Trinity is united together and that the lord is asking the father that 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 the that that the, the children meaning us the believers would be united as they are united together okay um he also said in matthew chapter 5 this is on the sermon of the mount he says therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect okay this is what we call uh, like a, a moral theosis in the sense that how is it that we are to become perfect like the father, right? Like there is no, um, there is no means by which because of our goodness that we become like the father apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, right? So God becomes 
Like we become in union with God. This is what we mean when we take communion. That's what communion is. Communion is being in union with God, right? So the more we approach the Lord and become in union with him, God's, the Holy Spirit works in us, that we're able to fulfill this command, which is the idea to be perfect. Perfect meaning to be Christ-like, right? To be as God himself, okay? Now, um, also in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, we will also read, um, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which uh, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. And this is the part that I want to focus on here, that we become partakers of the divine nature through his divine power that has been given to us okay so what does it mean when we become children of god right like we were created in the image and likeness of god like that is the way that god created us originally okay but then because of our sin it created like a gap between us and god which meant that we could no longer be in union the way that god wanted to be in union with us and this caused us damage like we were damaged because of our separation from God. So once we are baptized and become Christians, okay, we, 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 we are reunited with God, but it is not yet a full reunification, okay? We receive like what we would consider to be like the seed of theosis, okay, which um, includes forgiveness of our sins, which includes reconciliation, which includes justification, and also includes the restoration of God's image in us, which has been damaged by sin, okay? So um, this sinful inclination that we have in our human nature should no longer be the primary force that's governing, governing us. It doesn't mean that we stop becoming sinners. It doesn't mean that our sinful nature is completely removed, but it should no longer be the governing force that the primary force that governs our actions, our behavior anymore. And instead, we are now able to live a holy life through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, okay? Uh, and, and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, okay? So restoration to God and sanctification, okay, happens through this process of theosis, which is bringing us back in relationship with God again, okay? So this is what it means. We are reunifying with God. The thing that had been broken, the relationship between us and God that had been broken, right, is being mended, is being restored, bringing us back in relationship with God again, okay? St. Athanasius, he presents this theosis in, in, in this way. This is a quotation from him. He says, the reintegration of the divine image of man's creation through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, conforming the redeemed, which is us, into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and also of the believer's transition from mortality to immortality, so that he is enabled to participate in the eternal bliss and glory of the kingdom of God, right? So there's several elements here, okay? We're talking about a restoration of relationship. We're talking about a restoration of image. We're talking about a reconciliation between us and God. We're, called, we're talking about a justification, which means to be declared just, like for all of our sins to be wiped away, okay? We're talking about um, to become back again into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ through a process of sanctification. We're talking about to become immortal, right? Because we are, we are mortal and that we, 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 through union with God, we become immortal, right? And it is now through immortality that we are able to participate in eternal life, right? Because unless we are immortal, there's no way that we could live eternally, right? Which is what God is offering us. So how is all of this being accomplished? All of these things that we just said, it's all being accomplished because of deification, okay? Or theosis or divinization, okay? All these words mean the same thing. Now, this issue, um, some people understand it in a wrong way. And so when some people, when they use the word theosis, they're using it in the wrong way because some people consider that what theosis essentially means is that we become God. Okay, there's a difference between us being in union with God and growing in deeper union with God forever, okay, which is what it is, and us actually becoming God. We do not have the essence of God, 
we would not be ever worshipped as God, right? But we are united together with God in a very like intimate way. And it is from this unification that then stems virtue and stems, you know, that we are living in a Christ-like way, that we are perfect just as our Father in heaven is perfect. This is why a lot of times when people are like, you know, let's say struggling against certain sins in their life, okay? And a lot of times our first instinct is, you know, I, I need to try harder. I need to do better. I need to try different techniques. I need to, you know, do all these different things so that I could try to grow in virtue and stop committing sin. And all of that is right and good. And we should be doing that. Okay. Because um, the work, the spiritual work is a, is a, is a work of both us and God together. So yes, that is our work. That is what we do, but that is not going to cut it right by itself. Like, just trying harder, working harder, you know, the knowledge of sin does not keep me from being able to protect myself against it, right? Because there is a fundamental weakness. You know, I, I watched that movie, Social Dilemma, that speaks about like social media and the, the addiction of social media. And one of the interviews that they had in that movie was um, interviewing like one of the people that, you know, was one of the architects of social media, I think he was the guy who invented the like button or in Facebook or something like that. And, and what really struck me was this part in the, in the movie where he was saying how even though he himself knows that these systems are designed to be addictive and these systems are designed to keep you engaged, that he himself, even though he knows this is true, did not keep him from being addicted to it himself. And he actually had to stop using it altogether because he couldn't, he couldn't. Like every time he tried to put a limit for himself, uh, he, he would he, he, he couldn't stop, right? Even though he's the one who made it, you know, he's the one who knows that this is the way that it operates. So for us, simply to know right and wrong is not enough to be able to do right. And this is really the theme of the Old Testament. Like the whole Old Testament is really focusing on the idea that here is God presenting to us what is right and wrong, okay? Here is right, here is wrong, and no one was able to do what was right, even though we heard it from the mouth of God himself. You know, like imagine you are just sitting in your house, and, and, and you see this, this, this vision, or like this miraculous vision where God comes to you and he gives you the Ten Commandments and he says, these are the right things to do and these are the wrong things to do. Like, it's a very powerful, obviously, image, right? And this is exactly what happened to Moses. But as evidenced by the behavior of the Israelites, right, from that point on, just because they knew now what was right, gave them no power to do what was right. And this is what St. Paul speaks about in the book of Romans. He says, the law made us realize what sin is, but it gave us no power to stop sinning, right? It just made us realize that we are sinners, it made us realize that our natural thoughts and inclinations and desires and actions are actually your sin and are wrong. It made us realize that because God revealed to the people, by the way, all the stuff you're doing is sin, okay? But it didn't give them any power to fix themselves, right? And so when we speak about this idea of theosis, the theosis is the means for us to be repaired. Like that is, that is, that is saying we, we were made to be a certain way and then we were broken, right? When, 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 we, when we sinned and, and we remain in this state of brokenness until the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord, right? He, through this concept of theosis, he repaired us again. He fixed us again. It doesn't mean that we became perfect immediately. It means that he, he fixed something that was broken on us to make us now capable of something that we were no, not capable of before. And that doesn't mean that now we can just try harder. No, it means that through the work of the Holy Spirit that is working in us, through this process of becoming partakers of the divine nature, through union with God, through communion, which is what we take in the liturgy, right? Through these things we can now overcome our weaknesses, right? And again, it doesn't mean we will ever completely overcome. All that it means is that we are working now toward this path, okay? This path of, of growing closer and closer to God and being in union with God. Number seven, in the book of Tobit, can you explain why the demon killed every man who married Sarah? 
if the men married her for lust, wouldn't the demon want to encourage this behavior? Okay, so what is the story for those people who are not familiar with it? So Tobit is one of the deuterocanonical books in the Old Testament. It's a book that we believe to be canonical, just like all the other books of the Old Testament. You won't find it in uh, the New King James Version of the Bible, because this is a Protestant translation of the Bible that was a translation of what we call the Masoretic Text, which was a version of the Hebrew that, that removed this book. They didn't believe that this was an authentic book. Okay, But the original, what's even older than the Masoretic Text, okay, which is the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Old Testament, included these books, these deuterocanonical books, including Tobit. And so we believe that these books were there originally from the beginning, and we read them, we benefit from them. So in this book of Tobit, there is uh, this young boy named Tobias, and uh, it so happens that God has chosen that he would marry this woman named Sarah. Now, Sarah has this history, okay? She was a virgin, but she married, and every time she marries on the wedding night, this demon of lust would kill her husband before they could not before they could consummate the marriage. Okay, and it's revealed that um, this is because they were not worthy of her. Like she was a righteous woman, but these men who are coming to marry her were not righteous, and they lusted after her, and so the demon killed them from before this before they consummated the wedding. And this happened seven times. Okay, so now this man Tobias, this this, this young lad Tobias, who is now then asked by God to go and to marry her. He is obviously worried because he doesn't want this to happen to him, okay? Um, so the question here is saying, if this demon, uh, uh, you know, if, if sorry, if, if, if these men were lustful, okay, why would the demon want to kill them? And why, why wouldn't he just let them to be lustful because he wants to encourage sin? I think this is the, what the question is asking, okay? Well, we have to ask, like, why does why does the devil want us to sin? Like, what is the what is the ultimate goal, right, of us sinning? And the ultimate goal of us sinning is to go to Hades. Like, that's what the devil wants. He wants he wants to hurt God. This is the this is the goal of the devil. Like, the devil doesn't care about us one way or the other. He he hates God. The devil hates God. So, how do you hurt an omnip like like an omnipotent being? How is it possible to hurt a being that cannot be hurt? right because he is omnipotent so he sees that the lord loves us god loves us so much right and just as any parent who loves their children if you want to hurt the parent if the parent is untouchable if you want to hurt the parent you hurt their kids and by doing that you hurt the parent so what is it that the devil is doing why is it even tempting us and doing anything at all it's not because he has any feeling toward us whatsoever it's because he hates god and he knows that he can lure us away from god if you can bring this to Hades, then this would harm the Lord because God loves us so much. This is why this is why he why he does what he does. Okay, so the goal is to bring us to Hades. So in this case, right, if if the sin of these men and the lust of these men was such that they you know would be judged and go to Hades, right, then them dying would essentially accomplish what the, the what the devil wants, which is to bring them to Hades. So they are, they are going to Hades in the end. It's not just a matter of continuing to sin on the earth. It's that the sin now will be judged and their judgment will bring them to Hades. Okay, this is ultimately what Satan wants. Um, Archangel Raphael, who was like a hidden, a hidden friend, he was a, one of the friends, a friend of Tobias who hadn't revealed his identity that he was the angel. But he explained to, uh, he, he explained to Tobias how to be freed from this outcome, how to be, uh, not to, to fall into the same trap that all of these other seven men fell into. Okay, so this is in Tobit chapter 6. It says, Then the angel Raphael said to him, Listen to me, and I will reveal to you who they are, the men that marry Sarah, over whom the demon can prevail. Right? He's saying, I'm going to explain to you why this demon had, uh, like, uh, you know, prevailed against these men. For example, those who receive marriage in such a manner as to exclude God from themselves and from their mind, and in such a manner as to empty themselves to their lust, like the horse and mule, which have no understanding, over them the demon has power. But you, when you will have accepted her, enter the bedroom 
and for three days keep yourself continent from her and empty yourself to nothing other than prayers with her. So here he's saying that the, the demon prevailed against those men because they received marriage for, well, two things. One, they excluded God. Like God had no part in their relationship. God didn't, like God was not on their mind, the, the, the men. God was not on their mind. They, they, they were not seeking the will of God. They did not seek to have God with them in their, in their marriage or anything like that. Okay, so it says they excluded God from themselves and from their mind, and uh, they emptied themselves to their lust. So they were marrying simply for lust, right? Like the horse and mule, which have no understanding over them, the demon has power. And this is important because some people, even when they, when they think about the idea of marriage, they think of a marriage as though it's a license to lust, you know, like, like it, like what is marriage? Maybe, uh, maybe for men thinking about the sexual uh, aspects of marriage and thinking that this is the, this is the place, this is the, 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 the sanctioned relationship by which, right, that they can have sex. Okay. And, but what it's, but, but, but uh, like excluding all else, like excluding everything else, like the main thing they care about is this, you know, let's say some people. And so if this is the primary thing they care about and the primary thing they think about, the primary thing they're looking for, then, then we can say that even though someone is seeking to be married, and, and of course we know that sex is restricted when the bounds of marriage, but that doesn't mean that simply because someone is married doesn't mean that they cannot experience lust. Like maybe my whole relationship is based on something that it shouldn't be, right? There is much more, like the idea of excluding God. Do we exclude God? Are we seeking to please God in our relationship? Are we seeking to please God in our life? Or are we simply going after something that will bring me physical pleasure? And that's really in the end all I care about. And if I need to go through marriage to get it, that's, then I'll do it, right? So, so it, it gives us an insight here into um, why those seven were rejected, why the demon was able to prevail over them, and how is it that now um, the angel is speaking to Tobias and telling him how is it that he would be able to, over, to, to not be overwhelmed by this uh, demon? And he says, what, enter into the bedroom and for three days, keep yourself continent, meaning abstain from sexual activity. This is, this is symbolic of what, that we are, we are able to have self-control. Like we care about God more than we care about any other pleasure, okay? And this is, you know, uh, will bring success in marriage because the, the, whole, the whole center of marriage should be a desire to please God in all things, okay? And not, and not anything else. Um, Okay, this is a good stopping point for today. Let's just conclude in a prayer. Uh, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, O Lord, for this day. Please bless, O God, all those who are listening. We bless all your people in every place. Guide us and protect us and keep us safe in this life and help us to remember you and keep you before our eyes at all times. Teach us your ways, O God, and help us to be faithful and thankful toward you in all things. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, Here's as we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one in Christ Jesus our Lord. For thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a good night.